we're delighted to have you here this morning. We're going through the book of Acts as a church, and in the process, we're running a little bit ahead of the pulpit as we look at some support texts. So we're just a little bit ahead of time, but that's okay. I'll flesh it out a little bit as we go along, make sure we're all up to speed. So we're delighted to have you here this morning. Here's the question for you. How do you react to things? What does your reaction button look like in your life? I just typed onto Google Images, reaction, and I pulled some pictures for you. I didn't look at them carefully. I don't know if any of these are you. If they are, hey, don't blame me. It's the internet. That's one of my favorites. In fact, I think that's Becky when she was little. I don't know how you react to things, and I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so I can't give you the dynamics of what reactions are in the brain. I can speak as a fellow who's been alive and reacting for 53 years, and I can tell you that some of our reactions vary upon uh, uh, our conditions. Uh, We have uh, four daughters. One of our daughters, who I will keep nameless, uh, she has uh, reactions sometimes that are affected by whether or not she's hangry, as her husband JT calls it. (laughs) Whoops. Um, (laughs) Hangry is her anger reaction when she's hungry. If she hadn't had food... You don't want her reacting sometimes. We also have some other children who are slangry. If they don't have enough sleep, they react with a little bit of a temper. Then we have, look, I work with people who have reactions that range the gamut. And I think some of it's just genetics. I think some of it's environment. You know, if the if the experiments of Pavlov and his dog mean anything, you can ring the bell for Pavlov's dog, and the dog reacts by salivating. We have a, a, a little dog that we'd be delighted to give to anyone in here who wants her. Uh, assuming you're a good, responsible pet owner. See my wife after church. Anyway, we have a, a, a marvelous dog who knows the word walk. And if you use the word walk in any type of a conversation, she is running to you, ready to go for a walk. She will also, we have one certain little refrigerator drawer that we keep cheese in. She has distinguished the sound of that drawer from everything else in the house. Doesn't matter where she is. She hears that drawer. She comes running. She wants cheese. She's a cheese freak. So you've got reactions that happen Genetics, you've a combination, a component of them. A component of them is the environment. I want to suggest to you another component. I want to suggest to you, you are not at the mercy 
of your genetics and your environment for how you react to things. I want to suggest not only do you have a measure of control, assuming you've got a frontal lobe, not only do you have a measure of control yourself, but there is a God who will change your life as you walk in fellowship with Him and in that process change the way you react. It's not overnight. It's not an instantaneous thing. But little by little, gradually, as Paul says, we transform daily into the image of his son. And so there's a way to react. And I put this out there as we start class this morning because I want to urge you to grow in the Lord and I want to look at some tools we have to help us in that growth and in that reaction time. So let's do it together. The first story out of Acts is the story of Paul's conversion. Now, Paul is converted, and we know from the story that before Paul's conversion, he was a devout follower of God. He studied at the greatest schools. He was very zealous for his faith. He was a member of a group called the Pharisees. And they were the most uh, um, focused and, and driven and, and studious among all of the Jewish sects. And Paul, as a Pharisee, was zealous not only as a Pharisee, but he was zealous compared to the rest of the Pharisees. So much so that he had been persecuting the church. Paul held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, the Christian martyr. Paul got letters from the temple authorities to go to outlying cities, Damascus, and arrest those who were Jewish Christians and bring them to accountability. Paul's a persecutor of the church, but on the way to Damascus to inflict persecution upon Christians... Paul has a conversion experience where he sees Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul is initially blinded. He continues to go to Damascus, checks out the Christian that Paul had been told to see about his blindness in this new faith. And as Paul's contemplated it, the, 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 the interactions with the Christian caused Paul to put his faith not just in Jesus, but in a, in, a, in a very real sense, the scales fall from Paul's eyes as he sees. And this man who had been persecuting the church, who had overseen the death of one of the, the devout Christian leaders, Stephen, this man suddenly is a believer. What does he do? How does he react? How do you change? I, 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 there are some whose reaction would be, I'm so embarrassed over what I've done. 
I'm so embarrassed over who I was, I'm going to disappear. I'm going to put my head in the sand. There are some who would react and would never want to admit they were wrong. They would still figure out how to justify where they were and what they'd been doing. There are some who would react with just anger, mad at God. Why didn't you reveal yourself to me before we stoned Stephen? Why did you wait till the Damascus Road? What kind of God are you? There are some who would react with with, uh, a, a giddy childish joy. Look at the reactions of Paul. The text tells us that what Paul did is immediately go to the synagogues, which is where he was going when he was planning on arresting the the believers, ferreting them out from the synagogue. But now Paul's going to the synagogue not to ferret out the believers, but to teach, to proclaim Jesus as Lord. Paul starts taking action on behalf of God. Paul starts praising and worshiping the very God through Jesus Christ that he thought he was praising and worshiping by punishing the Christians. Now, all of that is just in one big role. Okay, there's some humor there, at least at four in the morning when I did it. That's one big role. And so the the role of Paul is to take all three of these, and I want to look at it through some Old Testament scriptures that I gave you to place it into context. If you've been reading along in the reading, Psalm 148 is a magnificent psalm. We don't know what Paul's mind was filled with, but I can tell you that Paul would later write to the Ephesian believers and he'd write to the church at Colossae and he would tell them both to speak to one another in psalms as well as hymns and spiritual songs. The psalms were not only important in Paul's personal ministry, but the Psalms were important in how Paul wanted other believers to minister to others. So let's look at Psalm 148 for a moment. I really like this psalm, and I like what it says and how it says it. So if you'd work with me here. Praise the Lord. That in Hebrew, that is a command word to praise. It's it's you Praise. It's like an order. It's an imperative, Ellen, in the English language. It's an imperative. And would you like to know how to say that word? Would you like to know the Hebrew on how to order someone to praise? It's a great word. You ought to know it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you know how to abbreviate the word for Yahweh? Yah. Hallelujah. That's where we get hallelujah from. In the Hebrew, this reads, hallelujah, with a Lubbock accent. As if you read Hebrew with a Lubbock accent. That's hallelujah. 
Hallelujah from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Alright, this is our praise chart. Praise. Alright, praise chart. We're going to praise Him. First, we've got in the heavens. And the heavens is going to include the angels and the hosts of heaven. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Makes sense that the angels and the hosts of heaven would be praising the God of the heavens? You with me? Okay, the psalm quits making sense in a minute if we're not careful. That's why I want it to make sense here. So praise the Lord in the heavens. Praise Him all His hosts. Now look at the next section. Praise Him, sun and moon, shining stars, highest heavens, waters above the heavens. Okay, now let's take our praise chart and put it back up here. So now, not just the heavens are going to praise Him, but also the sun, the moon, the stars, and moisture. The waters in the heavens. The condensation. This psalm is being written to people who don't have our understanding of science. Which, God willing, and Steve having given me an extra five minutes, I hope to get into at the end of class. So the psalmist is writing to a people at a time and himself is thinking that somewhere up in the heavens there's a storehouse of water. And it gets dumped out in the form of rain or snow. So the psalmist is telling not just that calling upon the heavenly angels and hosts to praise God. But he's calling on the sun and the moon and the stars and the moisture. Now you might be saying, that's crazy. How does the sun? Praise God. Was this, uh, was the psalmist, uh, uh, one of the, the pagans who thought that the sun was really a, a god in a chariot of fire that's in this rut going like this every day? That's how this god spends his day riding his chariot in the same path over and over. No, the psalmist is no pagan. The psalmist is not saying that the moon is a goddess who's shining her light at night. And so that goddess is called to praise the Lord. The psalmist recognizes that God created the sun. That God created the moon. They're not gods. God set the waters where they are in place. The waters are not God. There is one God, and the psalmist is calling upon the sun and the moon and the stars and the moisture to praise this God. Now, how, I ask you, can an inanimate object with no volition, 
no will, no conscious thought, praise God. The point of the psalm, the verses that are about to come, only make sense if we first ask that question. You see, the sun and the moon and the stars and the moisture, they, without volition, without will, without anything at all, they are praising God by being what God made them to be. If you will be what God makes you to be, you're praising God. That's the point of the psalm as we continue to see. Let them praise the name of the Lord because he commanded and they were created. See, they're not gods. He commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree. It shall not pass away. They have been established. They've been set up. They've been put there for a purpose. A decree. It's the same with the creatures of the sea. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures. All deeps. Fire. Hail. Snow. Mist. Stormy wind. Fulfilling his word. As they do what they were made to do. Even the inanimate objects. Praise the Lord. Mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, livestock, creeping things, flying birds. Whoops. And now we get to the point of the psalm. Because now we're transitioning into people with free will and volition. Free will. That's a loaded word. Don't get caught up in the theology. Get caught up in the vibe. Kings of the earth. All peoples. Princes. Rulers of the earth. Young men. Maidens. Old men. Children. Everybody. No gender distinction. No age distinction. No economic distinction. No social distinction. Everybody. 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 Let them praise the name of the Lord. Because his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He's raised up a horn for his people. A horn. The horn in Hebrew, that stands for strength. It stands for salvation. And so here is Paul. Paul knows this psalm. What's the right reaction? Paul needs to do what God made Paul to do. With worship and praise in every word, in every step. When life gives you the 180 on the road, what do you do? You praise the Lord and be who He made you to be. If the rocks can do it, 
If the mountains and the hills can do it, if the stars and the moon can do it and the sun can do it, look around you. Everything can be what God has put them in this earth to be today. And that includes you and me. And that included Paul. And so Paul knew that God had raised up a horn for his people. This is what David was emphasizing in his sermon. That in Jesus Christ, we have everything we need. In Ephesians, Paul says, in Christ, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Has blessed in the Greek is an aorist tense. In other words, don't get lost in the language. It's something he's already done. It's something that has happened. We live already blessed in Christ with all spiritual blessings. It's just a question of whether we walk in them. So that was Psalm 148. If we go back to the PowerPoint. Psalm 148, in a nutshell, we praise God by being who he made us to be. And so Paul is out there, action, praise, and worship. Now, Paul quickly turns from the persecutor into the persecuted. And the very Jews that were his buds and his friends now jump upon him as a wounded lamb. And Paul has to be smuggled out of Damascus at night in a basket let down over a wall. Paul the persecuted. The response is one of prayer and faith. And how does Paul come by that response? Paul comes by it through the Psalms. Psalms 70 and 71. Psalm 70. If you'll look at it with me. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Think about your Paul. Your buds that, that you, you know, I would, I would have thought that the, the, the establishment would have had enough faith in me. If I was Paul and I was the establishment's point man out there trying to rein in this Christian faith, I would have believed I had built up enough credits in the persecution bank in the I'm a good Jew bank, in the Pharisee of Pharisees bank, I would have thought I'd have built up enough street cred to where if I change my mind and do a 180, surely my buddies are going to turn around and appreciate this. If God's called me, surely he's called me because this is my crowd. These are my people. I'm valedictorian. I out-aced everybody on the exams. Don't tell me that number 32 in a class of 32 is going to trump me. Surely they've been copying on my test for the last 10 years. They're going to realize when I say we had the answer wrong then I'm right, and they're going to come along with me. What was it Winston Churchill said? Yes, I could change my mind and agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's got to be 
but no. They're persecuting Paul such that his life's in danger. Isn't it nice to have a psalm like Psalm 70 for Paul in that situation? Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let me be, let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, ah! May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Well, right now, God, I'm poor, I'm needy, hasten to help me. You're my help, you're my deliverer. Don't delay. And God doesn't. And Paul is let down by a basket over the wall of Damascus. And he gets away. Paul could read Psalm 71 and have taken great strength at that time. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me, rescue me, incline your ear to me, save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You've given the command to save me. I've been saved. You're my rock and my fortress, so rescue me. You've saved me. You've given the command. Rescue me from the hand of the wicked, the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. You are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I've leaned from before my birth. And Paul did. Paul had been a very devoted follower. He just didn't understand Jesus. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I've been as a portent to many. That's a, a portent, a place of, uh, uh, like a, a good harbor, a, a place of refuge. But you are my strong refuge. I've been like a, a portent, a sign. A, 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 I've been the, the anchor for others. But you are my refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and your glory all the day. Don't cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. My enemies speak concerning me. They watch my life. They consult together. They say, God's forsaken him. Loser. He's gone after Jesus. He's lost sight. He's gone to become a crazy Christian. Seize him. There's no one to deliver him. The psalm continues, and you can read it and get the gist of it and get the feel for it. But if we go back to the PowerPoint, what we get out of Psalm 70 and Psalm 71 is a cry out to God in both faith and thanksgiving. It's a cry out to God in faith. We know God is there. We know He's declared our salvation. We know who He is. And if you continue to read through the Psalm 71, you'll see the outpouring of thanks. Thank you, Lord. Even though I'm not rescued yet, thank you. I know I'm going to be. I know that you have plans for me and you will see them brought to fruition. It is what enables Paul, a decade later, to write the church in Philippi. And say to them, over a decade later, and say to them, don't worry about anything. But in everything, 
that might make you worry. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. In other words, by prayer, seeking God's help and thanking Him all at the same time, crying out to God in faith with thanksgiving, Paul says to the Philippians, let your requests be made known to God. Now, the last bit of that passage he wrote the Philippians was not the, the magic pill of, and poof, God will do it. Wasn't that. It was something better. It was this. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These psalms can fuel our devotional life and teach us godly reactions. We need to spend time in the psalms. David said this morning, Pastor David said in his sermon, he said, I got a word from the Lord. It speaks to me today. And these psalms, we can read them and we can see them speak to Paul. We can see them speak to us. It makes sense why Paul said, use the psalms, church, to teach and admonish one another. It's, it's a marvelous source of this. Okay, so what happens next? In the Acts narrative that we would have read this week, if you're reading on the reading plan, you then get to see Peter keeping kosher or not. I gave you the Old Testament passages that lay out the kosher eating rules. Fish with gills, you get them. Unless they're like autumn feeders. Scaleless fish. In other words, catfish, crawfish, shrimp. And you're not supposed to be eating camels. And you're not supposed to be eating rabbit. And pork is for Philistines, not for Jews. Did you know that even today, one of the principal ways archaeologists tell the difference in uh, uh, when archaeologists are over in the Holy Lands digging, there are areas that were Judah and Israel. There are areas that were the Philistine lands. But there's the the Shephelah, the the hill country, uh, uh, the lowlands between the coastal plain where the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees, Philistines were, and the mountain region of Judah, there's this constant fight over the, the key cities in the middle area. And archaeologists can go into these cities and they can dig down into the history of the city in layers, like a cake. And when they get down to a layer, one of the ways they can tell whether or not it was a Philistine city or a Jewish city, it's whether they can find pig bones. Because during the the Philistines, they loved their pork chops. They loved ham sandwiches. But the Jews would not eat it. And so it's, it's it's a really interesting way. I mean, this was something that was very, very important to the Jewish frame of mind. So Peter one day is having... 
a, a, a leisurely day in Joppa and he gets a dream. And in the dream, a sheet comes down and there's a bunch of unclean animals in the sheep. And God tells Peter in the dream, hey, grab something and eat it. Peter says, no way. It's not kosher. I, I read Leviticus. I know what I can eat. I won't touch anything that's unclean. God says, don't declare something I made unclean. That's my job. Now, I'm going to tell you again. Go eat it. Peter's kind of like, well, I mean, I don't want to be God. Okay. And about that time, three men come. Banging on the door. Hey, we've been sent by a centurion. We've been sent by a, a, a Roman head soldier guy named Cornelius. And he said we'd find Peter staying by at Simon the Tanner's shop in Joppa by the sea. He needs you to come up to Caesarea because he, he wants he says you've got a word for the Lord from the Lord for him. Peter's kind of like, Oh, I'm not supposed to be going to these unclean people. Maybe that's what the vision is. I love the way God doesn't just pull Peter's strings like a puppet. But you can see God working in Peter's mind to help Peter's mind be transformed and to learn and to grow and to see the hand of God. God's not trying to make any of us computer chips or computer programs. God's trying to take the wonderful, majestic, honorable, dignity-filled human being made in the image of God, yet fallen, and transform us into what we ought to be. Just as he did with Peter. So Peter goes, and in the process he grows, his mind grows, he hears the word of God and he obeys God. And he goes to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius and his household are gathered together. And as Peter comes in, do you know what they do? They start bowing down to Peter. Whoa! The messenger of God, it's like God himself. You know, in the pagans, you know who God's messenger, if Zeus wanted to send a message, do you know who he would use generally? Hermes, the winged foot guy. You know, the God with the winged foot who brings flowers according to the florist ads? He's got the winged foot because he's the messenger of God. So, I mean, it's kind of like, hey, this is Peter's God's messenger. He's a God too. We're bowing down. Peter says, don't you bow to me. I'm Peter. I fish for a living. The Lord that I'm going to tell you about is who you want to bow down to. Peter's not uppity. Peter's not arrogant. Peter's not proud. His pride's not enjoying the adoration. Hey, while you're bowing down, would you give me some money? No, that's not what Peter's about in his ministry. Peter's, don't, don't bow down to me, please. But let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. I'm not a God, I'm a man. And he does. And the work of God is amazing. 
And it's the first time we start to see God's amazing work. I gave us Ephesians 3 because Paul wrote about this amazing work. And I think in some ways we lose track of, of, of just how amazing this is because we don't live in that age where the Jew and the Gentile are so distinct. I've got some very dear friends that are Jewish that don't yet know the Lord as Messiah. I pray that they will soon. Um, uh, and, and I long for that day because I love them to death and I want them to see the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, is Jesus Christ. Savior of the world, in addition to being Messiah of Israel. And Paul writes about it in Ephesians 3 in a beautiful way. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, non-Jews, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Assuming, Ephesians, and this is, the letter to the Ephesians is a letter, is what's called a circular letter. It's not to just one dedicated congregation like our church. It's to be passed around to lots of churches in that whole area. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, the mystery is this. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. God's amazing work was to say that, yes, I have promised for thousands of years through the seed of woman, through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the line of Judah, through the seed of David. I have promised for over a thousand years to bring one to be Messiah of Israel. But the surprise mystery is that same one is the Savior of the world. Which, since I'm not Jewish by birth, I'm really stoked about. Because I need a Savior. Just as Israel does. So we looked at Peter keeping kosher, and I want to keep moving on if we go back to the PowerPoint. And then Peter's rescue. We've got two more short vignettes in 14 minutes, thank you, Steve, um, in which to do them. So bear with me and I'll, I'll cut these a little bit shorter. Peter's rescue is amazing. It comes on the heels of James being martyred. James is martyred for the Lord. And I put in your handout uh, an early church write-up of the martyrdom of, of James. It's worth reading it's very touching because of another Christian who was with James. And Luke doesn't have time and space to tell us about it in Acts, but the early church recorded it. And it's, it's just it's touching to me. So I hope you take it home and read it. But uh, um, uh, you've got 
you've got James who's, who's just been killed by Herod, King Herod. Now, there are several Herods in the Bible. Herod was uh, is kind of like George Foreman and his kids. You know how he named a bunch of them George? Okay, there's, there's like a ton of Herods. And jo- through Josephus, well, there are. There's like George Foreman 1, George Foreman 2, George Foreman 3, George Foreman 4, and they all have their own grills, and it's a... Anyway, so except George knows the Lord, unlike Herod Antipas. So Herod, we, we can put a, G, a family tree together and sort through the different Herods in the New Testament, thanks to Josephus, a Jewish historian who lived and uh, wrote in the, the 90s uh, AD. So you've got that in there. But suffice it to say, Herod figured out when he killed James and another Christian who was with James, that it was making all the Jews happy. Generally, the Jews didn't like Herod very much. So Herod's feeling pretty good about things. So Herod decides he's going to kill Peter. Peter's a good one. So they get Peter and they lock him up. God comes and delivers Peter in the middle of the night. Sends an angel. Peter's unshackled. Peter's, the doors are open. The guards aren't looking. It's like an episode of 24 where it all just works. Boom, 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 boom. And he gets out. And he goes running through the streets at night. And the church is so concerned about him. They're all holed up. In this one house. And Peter knows where they are or figures where they are. And he gets his way and he makes it through the streets and the alleyways. And he's finally, he's at the door. He's banging on the door. And Rhoda, the servant girl. You know, there's an APB out on Peter. He's a he's dead man walking. Peter, hurry! Rhoda goes to the door. It's midnight. Who is it? Peter! Yeah, right. Who is it? I mean, Christians, it's not a safe time to say, hey, we're having a prayer service. Would you like to come in? Okay? So she's like, no, who is it? He says, it's Peter. God has rescued me. Let me in. And she gets so excited. She just turns around and runs back in and tells everybody, Peter's at the door. Peter's at the door. God rescued him. They're kind of like, and you left him out on the street with the door locked and someone trying to kill him. <gasps> oh! And that's why Rhoda is the patron saint of airheads. <laughs> Rhoda runs back, opens the door. Peter comes in, tells him what God has done. They're all amazed at the deliverance of God. And I wonder as Peter then disappears, and Luke doesn't tell us where Peter goes, because Peter didn't tell anybody. He goes underground. So nobody knows, save God and Peter. But here's what we have. As Peter accepts, seeks the best, blesses the Lord, we get it from Psalm 116 and Psalm 124. And we've got just enough time to look at at least a couple of verses out of those. Psalm 116 and Psalm 124. You just got to figure Peter's singing this song. Okay. I love the Lord. He's heard my voice. He's heard my pleas for mercy. He's inclined his ear to me. I'll call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. 
the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. That Sheol, think of it as death. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. He preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. You've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I'll walk before the Lord in the land of the living. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I'll lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I'm your servant. Your servant, the son of your maidservant, you've loosed my bonds. I know it's precious in your sight, the death of your saints. But God saw fit to make sure I wasn't one of them right now. And that's because he's got a purpose and a plan. And I'm going to lift up his cup of salvation and I'm going to do it. I think this psalm would have given great solace to Peter. All right. We need to, to Psalm 124 is another. Well, I don't know. All right. Looking at the time, I got to get back to science. I promised I would. This is Steve. One twenty-four. If the Lord had not been on our side, if it wasn't the Lord on our side, let Israel, let everybody say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, the flood would have swept us away. We'd be gone. Blessed be the Lord who's not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we've escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Reaction. Accept, seek the Lord or seek the best and bless the Lord. All right, back to the PowerPoint. So what do we have here at the end? Our last story, are we, yeah, there we go. Our last story is this, Herod's pride. Now, Herod, it's a really interesting story in Acts because the way Luke writes it, he sets it up as a contrast to the story of Peter and Cornelius. Remember when Peter goes to see Cornelius the centurion? The centurion and all of his family bow down. Oh, you're a god. You're the messenger of the gods. You're a god. Peter says, stand up. I'm not a god. I'm a man. And let me tell you about Jesus. Herod has a big event. And at the big event, everybody comes out and says, Oh, Herod, you're like a god. The sun and its brilliance shines upon you. And Herod says, now that you mention it, I see what you, I see the resemblance. I see what you got. I see what you got. That's just how I roll. Oh, Herod. Well, as a God, I think it's appropriate I give you a feast day. And Luke says in Acts, he says, and in his pride and arrogance, 
while Peter humbled himself and said, I'm not a God, Herod said, yeah, I can see that. And so Peter becomes God's vessel. God works through Peter. It saves Peter from Herod. But Herod, he strikes down and he kills. And so with Herod, there's a, a warning of pride. And if we're going to put the role back up, it's a different kind of role for Herod. Because Herod gets intestinal worms. <laughs> and they eat through his gut. And his guts spill out. And if you think it's just some sordid biblical account that Luke put in there, read the other historical accounts of it because they're written down. Read what Josephus has to say about it. Pride comes before a fall. And so I put as our context readings for that, Second Chronicles 26, that's the story of Uzziah. Uzziah is a good king. He's a good king. He's listened to Isaiah the prophet. He's a good king who tries to follow the Lord. He's a good king who when he is 54, warning to those of us who turn 54 this year, decides he's been such a good king that he can serve the Lord in ways that other kings haven't. And he can march into the temple. And in his pride over who he is. What's the saying? Pride comes before a fall. And so you get that. Ecclesiastes 7 I put in. Ecclesiastes 7 gives some really good cogent advice on how you can avoid being uh, uh, prideful and arrogant. Look at Ecclesiastes 7 for a moment. Right, three minutes. A good name's better than precious. Well, look at Ecclesiastes 7 when you have time. It'll give you some great stuff. Instead, right now, let's do the science thing. 2 Timothy 3. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about pride. And he says this. 2 Timothy 3, verse, starting with verse 1. Understand this, Timothy. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. You know, one of the ways I'm convinced we get proud in our day, in the last days, it's been the last days since Jesus ascended to heaven, but we've learned so much about the world and the way God has made it and the way it works that we have a tendency to be proud in our knowledge because we can figure out the way uh, 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 the waters come out of the heavens that we almost laugh at the old people who didn't understand and just thought it was something praising God because we've got 
And, and the sad part is, all of the knowledge that we've got should move us to deeper humility and deeper praise. Because we're able to see the magnificent hand of God and the wisdom of God and the foresight of God in ways that no one else has been able to see before. I mean, what kind of a God would ever dream up this whole condensation thing anyway? Water evaporates, water goes up, water accumulates, water dissipates. Water evaporates, condensates, boom, 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 boom. That's pretty cool. We've got reasons to overjoy, not because we figured it out, but because we've seen the hand of God. And when we see it, we remember what Paul said in Romans, that God's invisible qualities are made evident to us in the world we see. God's efficiency, God's compassion, God's justice, God's, you know, Every time I drop this, I could do it a hundred times. Well, it would break. Every time I drop this, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to tell you, without even trying it, when I drop this, it's going to fall. Boom! Who's the man? Should I take pride in that? Oh, look. I'll bet I can go two for two. Boom! There's no cause for pride. There's cause for amazement at God who didn't make this a magic world where we can't rely on something, but made this consistent, solid, regular, reliable. That's who God is. And that's how he made this world. So points for home. Key takeaways. I want to start praying more with faith. I really, really do. And I can say that. And you can say that. You can be praying 24-7, though I doubt you are. It doesn't matter how much we're praying. I want to pray more. I want my reaction to, to the twists and the turns and the blessings and the curses of this world. I want my reactions to be one of prayers with thanks. I want it to be a reaction of actions with praise. I don't want to be the person taking the phone. Oh, I worked for a lawyer one time. He didn't take the phone and slam it down. He took the phone, slammed it down, then picked up the entire unit and threw it across his office. Woo! I don't want to be that guy. In fact, I remember thinking that. Note to self, when you become big lawyer, don't throw phone. Who, who wants to grow up and do that? I, I, I want my actions. Now, I'm not saying that Pavlov's dog hadn't trained you or your genetics haven't trained you or your environment hadn't trained you to be that way. I'm telling you, spend time with the Lord and let him change the way you're wired. He will change the way you're wired. And last, I love this hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. There's a line in the hymn, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. 
All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. That's where I want to be. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for the honor of getting to address so many brothers and sisters. Thank you for the honor of getting to speak of your word and the lessons that are in those pages. It is my prayer that that you will take what time we have spent today and use it to help transform us into who we need to be to give you the glory and the praise and to be people of action, lifting up your cup of salvation to a world that desperately needs to drink it. Mold us and make us after your will. That's what we wait for, Lord. Through the blood of Jesus, amen.